Oh, Father, as we come to your word today, we thank you that your word is inerrant. We thank you that your word is infallible and beyond sufficient for every need that we have, for every um, situation you speak to it, for every life circumstance you guide us through your word. And so we come to you this morning as people who journey, who wander in a broken and dark world. And we ask for our daily bread, that you would use your word to guide us, to sustain us, and to grow us in the likeness of Christ for his glory, in his name. Amen. If you have your Bible with you, we are going to be looking at Genesis chapter 26 today. Genesis chapter 26. If you got your Bible from out in the foyer, we are on page 20. Page 20. We're going to be looking at verses 17 to 33. 17 to 33. And as we continue in our study of Genesis today, it would be good for us to remember that we're in the middle of a, of a chapter. We're starting in the middle of a chapter, a chapter that I, I had hoped to be able to preach all the way through last week, but as you saw last week, there's just no way uh, that I would get us out of here before dinner if I would have tried to go for the whole, uh, the whole passage, the whole chapter. So we need to remember what we learned in the previous passage. We need to remember what we learned in the first half of this chapter. We saw that the main point Uh, that we saw in the passage last week was that there are practical benefits and blessings that we find in the doctrine of God's omnipresence. The fact that He is fully in all places. He's not just partially in all places. He is fully to be found in all places. We saw that believing in God's omnipresence, believing that He is fully there, should shape the way that we make decisions. And maybe there's no better way of explaining that or illustrating that than to, uh, you know, imagine a cop behind you on a two-lane road. Uh, Every day I make this trip down this road here, down to the Perrinville post office to drop off stuff that my wife and I have sold on eBay. And this past week, one day, I had a police cruiser behind me the entire way up here. And if you've ever had that happen, of course you have if you've driven long enough, uh, if, you, if you've ever had that happen, you know that even one mile an hour is totally noticeable to you when you have a police car right behind you. Every mile an hour you go over the speed limit, you notice much more than you do if a cop isn't there. So the same should be true with God. Knowing that He is omnipresent. Knowing that He is fully there and fully aware of what we're doing. The problem, as we saw last week, isn't that we don't know it intellectually, because we do. We know intellectually that God is omnipresent, but our hearts struggle to believe it. Our hearts struggle to really believe it. Maybe because our minds just can't fully comprehend the doctrine of God's omnipresent. How do you fully comprehend that He's everywhere? Fully, everywhere. I don't think we can fully comprehend it. Maybe it's because it just doesn't bother us as much as it should to know that God hates sin. But for the person who has repented, for the person who has placed saving faith in Christ Jesus, we know that even though we sin, 
there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 So even though we sin, and we sin continually, we have the blessed assurance that the sin that we have, that our sin has been dealt with in full. Nevertheless, even though God did deal with our sin fully on Calvary, the Lord still disciplines His own. He disciplines His children to bring them to repentance and to grow them in the likeness of Christ. And that's exactly what Isaac experienced in the first half of this chapter. Isaac faced a famine in the land in his day, just like his father did. And his reaction was to do the same thing that his father did. He started heading down to Egypt. But as we saw last week, instead of getting all the way down to Egypt, the Lord appeared to him in the region of Gerar, instructing Isaac to stay in the land that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants. And in this demonstration of great, great faith, Isaac obeyed. Remember, from a naturalistic perspective, that is dancing with death because there is a drought and a famine, which means you better go find some water and you better find some food. But in a demonstration of great faith, Isaac did what God instructed. He obeyed. God promised that he would be with Isaac. He blessed that he, or he promised that he would bless him and prosper him. And that's exactly what happened. God protected Isaac. God prospered Isaac. But Isaac nevertheless fell into sin. He fell into his father's sin. He did exactly what his father did. And he lied to King Abimelech about who he was and who his wife was, claiming her to be his sister. But Abimelech, you'll remember, saw him uh, acting very unbrotherly toward his wife and realized what had happened. So Isaac did fall into sin. He claimed Rebekah as his wife. But the Lord used Abimelech to confront and to correct Isaac in his sin. And the pagan king in the aftermath promised protection for Isaac and Rebekah. And in the aftermath of this, this rebuke, this, this correction that Isaac received, you'll remember that his crops grew a hundredfold despite the lack of rain in the region. And of course, that was a clear demonstration of God's miraculous providence for him. And this made Isaac not just very rich, but very, very wealthy. And it was all the Lord's blessing upon him. But we should know that being blessed by the Lord doesn't mean that life's going to be easy. God can bless you, God can prosper you, but that doesn't mean that your life's going to be a cakewalk. The blessing of God upon Isaac invoked a great sense of envy in Isaac's neighbors in Gerar, as you'll remember, who wanted the gifts that God had given to Isaac but they didn't want the gift giver. They wanted the blessings, but they didn't want to belong to God. And so the story left off with Abimelech coming to Isaac and personally instructing him, hit the road, Jack. Get out of here. And before we continue, we should note that we aren't exactly sure why Abimelech instructed Isaac to leave. Maybe it was because Abimelech envied Isaac just like all the other people. Maybe it was because Isaac was becoming too wealthy and thus too powerful. Or maybe it was because Abimelech just knew that with the uprising of neighbors against Isaac, he was no longer able to provide protection for Isaac and Rebekah. Either way, whatever the case may be, Isaac was told to get out of Dodge. 
So our text today is going to be Genesis chapter 26, verses 17 to 33. And the main idea that we're going to see in this passage is that being at peace with God and walking in obedience to God will often invite strife and conflict with sinful man. Walking with God, being blessed by God, being prospered by God, being obedient to God will often invite strife with sinful man. Now, while the text doesn't explicitly say it, the actions of Isaac through the rest of this chapter demonstrate him to be deeply changed. They demonstrate him to be deeply repentant over his sin. He had failed to believe in God's promises of blessing and protection before. But now Isaac is going to illustrate for us the peace that comes from believing, really believing, not just knowing, but believing that God is with and for his children. And I challenge you to compare the Isaac that we're going to see in the second half of this chapter with the Isaac that we saw at the beginning of the chapter. So let's start with verses 17 to 20. Genesis chapter 26, verses 17 to 20. We read this. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. So he's been told to to leave. He's been told to hit the road. And so instead of settling in city limits, in the city of Gerar, the text text tells us that he doesn't go very far. Instead, he, he does leave, but he settles, or attempted to settle, in what's called the Valley of Gerar. And that probably would have been the valley that immediately led like right into the city or the region known as Gerar. And it's worth noting that one thing Isaac didn't do when he's told to hit the road, one thing he doesn't do is take matters into his own hands again and go down to Egypt. Remember, that's where all the water is. But Isaac doesn't go there. He doesn't go down to Egypt. What does that tell us? The fact that he doesn't go to Egypt that he doesn't take matters into his own hands. What does that tell us? Well, it's something of an indication that Isaac has grown in obedience, in faith. He's trusting that the Lord was with him. He's believing in his heart that the Lord is with him and that the Lord would provide for him. And so when he was told to fret... I mean, the thing that I think I would have done is I, I would have started worrying. I would have started you know, looking at a, at, a, at a map and trying to figure out what's my next best option. But he doesn't do that. Instead of fretting, instead of worrying, instead of having anxiety, instead of fearing, he trusts the Lord. But he doesn't go far. He, he packs up and he's, he's ready to move again, but he doesn't go far. As he settled, he did find some old wells that his father and his servants, his father's servants, had dug up in years past. But after Abraham died, we see that the Philistines buried the well. Now there are two possible reasons that they would do that. Number one, they hated Abraham so much that they would rather die than drink the water that he provided. I don't find that to be extremely likely. The other reason is that they buried it because it died. 
I mean, you're in a, a region where water can be extremely scarce, and if a well is still providing life-sustaining water, you would think that you would claim it, that you would use it, that you would protect it, and not just protect it, but protect it to the death, because without it, you're dead. When a well goes dry, you bury it. And I imagine that that's why they buried this well, because it went dry after Abraham died. It's worthless. It doesn't serve a purpose anymore other than wasting a couple minutes while somebody goes to it and tries to draw water from it and all they get is a bucket of sand. But as Isaac's servants dig up this old well, this old dried up well, they find fresh spring water. And I want you to think about what a great miracle it is that they would find fresh spring water in this location. This is Not only is this well dried up, but they're in the midst of a famine. They're in the midst of a drought. Why do you think Isaac went and dug up this well? Because he knew that the Lord was with him. And he believed that the Lord would provide for him. He knew that this was one place where the Lord had blessed and provided for his father Abraham. Now from a naturalistic perspective, the chances, the, the, the odds of them finding anything even remotely wet in this ground, this hole in the ground, uh, were, were pretty slim to none. The odds of them finding even you know, a few drops of water were, were, were slim to none, but, but God is faithful to His promises. That's what we see here, that God is faithful to His promises. And we see a great miracle of providence here in the fact that this well that's been buried for years has fresh spring water flowing in it. Now, I don't want to allegorize here or anything. I'm not one to allegorize, and I, I, I don't like allegory where it's not warranted, but is it possible that part of the lesson to be gleaned here, part of the lesson to be learned from this passage is the principle that God's blessing is found in the same place from one generation to the next. Think about it for a second. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator, wrote this. He said, quote, "...in our searches after truth, that fountain of living water, it is good to make use of the discoveries of former ages, which have been clouded by the corruption of later times. Inquire for the old way, the wells which our father digged, which the adversaries of truth have stopped up." End quote. See, in our day and age, people, churches specifically, want something that's, that's pragmatic. That is, they want something that works. They want something that not only works, but works very, very quickly. We, we love instant gratification in our day and age. And we love new things. We love change. We love progress. I, I hear pastors and church leaders all the time saying stuff like, we need to change this, we need to change that. Why? So that we can appeal to the culture. We need to change the music if we want to reach the lost. We need to invest in programs that have been proven 3,000 miles away in a place that's totally different from this one. Isn't it possible that this passage is here to remind us that instead of following the world's trends, instead of following all the cultural fads that change from one week or sometimes one day to the next, instead of moving forward and changing everything, maybe what we need to do is go back. 
instead of progressing by the world's understanding, going forward by the world's ways, maybe we should go back to what Scripture says. To where generations in the past have found great, rich blessings. Where does one go to find joy that transcends our circumstances in our day and age? Same place that people have found it in previous generations. Where can a person find peace with God? The same place that peace has been found with God for the last 2,000 years. At the cross on Calvary. What was behind movements like the Great Awakening or 3,000 coming to faith on Pentecost for that matter? An unwavering commitment on behalf of the church to preach boldly, to live in a way that demonstrates a pursuit of righteousness, of holiness, and to do so unapologetically. The return to holding a very high view of God and a very low view of man, of ourselves. And that's dangerous in our day and age because really in American culture, self-esteem, self-perception, self-identity, these are idols that we put above God. We'd rather be happy than holy. But God is more interested in our holiness than He is in our happiness. With God, if something is new, it isn't true. There are no new Christian doctrines. There are no new messages that we have to bring the world. God's blessings, God's providence, they're found in the same places they've always been found. The question is, do we have the faith and the courage and the drive and the resolve to defy the world's wisdom? To be the one fish that swims the other way in the river. To be different than the culture, which is telling us, try something new. Try something that's worked for for everybody else. And instead of doing that, pursuing God's blessings where they've always been found. So Isaac finds God's providential blessing in the exact same place that God had blessed his father, Abraham. Not so fast, say the Philistines, right? Yeah, the same Philistines who plugged up this old well now are going to get a little bit feisty with Isaac and his people, claiming, hey, that water belongs to us. Yeah, the same people who stopped it up are now claiming that the water is theirs. See, they needed that water too. Why did they need that water? Because there's a famine. There's a drought in the land. And so apparently... These are people who had never heard the timeless rule that we all live by, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. (laughs) And what's Isaac's response? Well, he could have said, well, I'm going to go to King Abimelech and we'll see what he says. He could have said, hey, whatever happened to finders, keepers, losers, weepers? He could have appealed to his personal rights, but instead his response is a reflection of the peace that passes understanding that he's got within himself because he knows that God is with him. And so instead of arguing, instead of fighting, instead of appealing to a higher authority like a king or his personal rights as a human being, instead of going to war, for what was rightfully his in this dispute and causing the dispute. Instead, he just calls the place Essek, which means contention. And he packs his bags, and he hits the road again. 
Isaac is walking by faith. He's walking by faith. He, He doesn't need to take actions. He doesn't need to appeal to the king. Why? Because he's confident that the Lord was with him and that the Lord was for him. He was so sure that the Lord would be faithful to His promises to bless and protect him that he just said, okay, I'll rename this place and we'll go. So he names the place after the situation and he moves on. Great faith. This is great faith. But the trials and the temptations aren't over yet. Let's look at verses 21 and 22. The herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek. Whoops, I'm repeating. 21 and 22. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. So what happens? It looks like a replay. Instant replay, right? It's the same thing that happens again. And it probably moved Isaac once again a little bit further away from Gerar, but once again the Philistines present opposition for him. And if there's anything to be learned here, it's the fact that trusting in God is not going to eliminate adversity in our lives. Trusting in God is often going to invite adversity in our lives and if you don't know that my fear is that you wouldn't be prepared for it my fear is that if you're not prepared for that if you think that life is just going to be a walk in the park because you're a child of God that everything is going to be easy breezy my fear is that you'll buckle spiritually when pressure comes resorting to compromise or worse than that God forbid possibly even apostasy straying from the faith completely. And people do that. In the parable of the seeds and the soil, Jesus talks about that happening. See, it's better. It's better to be blessed by God and scorned by man than it is to be praised by man but scorned by God. So the question is, whose pleasure matters more to you? God's or the world's? God's or man's? Who are you trying to please in your decision making? Who are you living for? Who are you serving? Who dictates what you do and don't do? Because it can't be both. It really does have to be one or the other. I mean, isn't this exactly what we see in the American church today? There was a time in our country when the opposition, when, when those who opposed Christianity were the minority, and they were a very small minority, they didn't have the means, like we do in our day and age, of promoting their opposition to Christianity, other than writing books that rarely went read, or teaching in the classroom. But by and large, the tables in our country, in our culture, have turned. And those who are holding to the doctrine that the Christian faith has affirmed for 2,000 years are now in the minority. Tables have completely changed. We're in the position that those people were 100 years ago. So now today we have denominations that have 
completely compromised, though they still affirm some very important doctrines. They've also surrendered very important doctrines, doctrines like the doctrine of inerrancy. That's the most common one in our day and age, is surrendering the doctrine of inerrancy. But when you throw out the doctrine of inerrancy, you also do away with the whole idea of the Bible being authoritative. Because if it isn't the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God, then what does it have to say to me? What does it have to say to my life? What authority does it have over me or anyone else? There are also some churches that I would say compromise deeply on the doctrine of justification. And I would argue that these, these two doctrines, just these two, and there are more, but just these two doctrines, inerrancy and the doctrine of justification, are foundational to the Christian faith. You see compromising churches giving an inch to ideas like evolution or homosexuality. And instead of just giving up that inch, they end up surrendering a mile because it really is that much of a slippery slope. If you are going to be at peace with God, if you are going to walk in obedience to God, you are going to face adversity from the culture. The first challenge is to resist compromising with the culture. But once compromise takes place, as it so often does, it's just a short trip to apostasy from there. And this is exactly what we've seen with so many of the major denominations in America. Because once you deny biblical authority, there is really no logical end to the orthodox established doctrines of the Christian faith that you will deny. There's no logical place where you'll draw the line other than this is what feels good today. But tomorrow it might change if the Bible doesn't have authority over your life. If the Bible isn't authoritative over your life, morally speaking, where will you stop? And this is what's given rise to the apostasy of the mainline American church today. If you're going to take a stand for God, if you're going to walk at peace with Him and in obedience to Him, you are going to face adversity. Prepare to have your faith tested. But remember this. The battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. And God has made some very important promises for us to cling to, for us to know and to cling to. Was Isaac's faith being tested here? Absolutely. Could he have tried to work out some kind of compromise with the Philistines? He could have, but why? Why would he compromise? Why forfeit even the smallest portion of God's blessing, of God's providence unto him, for the sake of coexisting peacefully with these people? Could he have walked away from his faith entirely? I mean, maybe he could have just joined the Philistines' camp. If you can't beat him, join him, right? Disastrous. Absolutely disastrous. Once again, Isaac, though faced with adversity, and though faced with the constant challenge, the constant temptation to stop trusting in God's promises, to stop trusting in what God had personally promised him, he continues to nevertheless trust in God and to walk in obedience to God. He doesn't go to war. He doesn't appeal to a higher worldly authority. 
God was Isaac's authority, his only authority, and God had promised to protect and provide. And so Isaac, once again, names the place after the situation. He names the place Sitna, which means enmity or strife. And he moves on once again. And we see a third time, Isaac and his servants dig a well. And I imagine that each time they're, they're uprooting and, and moving, they're going further and further and further away from Gerar. How far? Well, we, we can't be exactly sure, but you can't go too long without water. You can't wander through, uh, through that area uh, where there is no water to be found, really, aimlessly. And it's not just Isaac. He's got Rebecca with him. He's got his two boys with him. He's got his servants. So maybe each time they're, they're going a, a day's journey, maybe two days' journey until their next stop. But finally, as they dig the third well, which once again has fresh water in it, the Philistines finally don't contend with him for this spot. Maybe Isaac is, is finally moving far enough away that they don't even know that he found water Maybe the Philistines, you know, maybe they just have enough water for themselves now that they've got these two wells that Isaac has dug up for them. Or maybe they're just tired of, of fighting for their rights for the, to the water, whatever the case. This well goes uncontested. This well belongs to Isaac. And what we see here is that Isaac is completely opposite his half brother Ishmael. If you'll remember what God had prophesied about Ishmael, what God said Ishmael would be like, God said that that he would be against, that Ishmael would be against every man, and that every man would be against him. Ishmael was not to be a peace seeker or a peacemaker, but Isaac was. Isaac was. And of course, the amazing thing is that Wherever Isaac went, he found life-sustaining water. And the miracle is seen that, in, that this is all during the midst of a famine and, and drought that was severe enough that people were heading down to Egypt to survive. And every time that Isaac puts a hole in the ground, water's showing up. We can't miss the fact that God is with Isaac. God has been faithful to His promises. He's been faithful to protect him. He's been faithful to bless him, to provide for him. To uphold his promises. And so Isaac names this well Rehoboth, which means broad places or room. The implication being that there's plenty of room for those in Isaac's camp to settle and expand. But here's where it gets kind of interesting. Because Isaac doesn't stay there. And you would think that After all this strife and after all this conflict and getting uprooted time after time and moving once and twice and a third time and even a fourth time really to go to the well, including moving down to the region of Gerar, you'd think that he'd just be sick of moving. But instead, he heads back to the place called Beersheba, where Abraham had settled. Let's look at verses 23 to 25. From there he went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offering for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. 
Now, we aren't sure why he didn't stay in Rehoboth. It's possible that he felt like he was just too close to the Philistines, that he was too close to where all this other conflict had taken place, and that it was just a matter of time before these guys came in and started claiming this third well as their own. It could be that he felt like sleeping with one eye open, so to speak, was just too much of a burden for him. But this would explain why God says to him, fear not. He says, fear not, I'm I'm with you. Why would he say fear not? Because he was afraid. What did he have to be afraid of? Well, my first guess would be that he was afraid of the Philistines coming in, coming after him again. Looking at the big picture, we see that God has actually allowed Isaac to face this adversity and to be chastened by his enemies all for the sake of bringing him home. But I hope you can see the way that Isaac's faith is being strengthened, grown, and refined through this whole chapter. He went from being the type of person who was at least very tempted to take matters into his own hands when things went wrong, to becoming wealthy and powerful, to becoming hated, and to being something of a refugee. And surviving and being at peace with that situation, with that status. See, his faith is growing. It's being refined. It's being sharpened, strengthened. And so as he arrives in Beersheba, the Lord appears to him in a theophany, an appearance of God, once again, reiterating his promises to Isaac and stilling his heart, calming his fears. But note, the change in tense. Back in verse 3, God said, I will be with you. Now God says, I am with you. See, it wasn't luck. wasn't coincidence. wasn't good fortune or any of those things that Isaac survived. And not only survived, but prospered. It was all God's doing. It was all God's doing. All the credit goes to God. It wasn't just that Isaac was a survivalist and knew how to survive if he's out in the, in the wilderness. He knew how to, how to find where the water was. No, it was all God. It was God's hand upon him, blessing him, guiding him, sustaining him. God has been with Isaac and He is with Isaac, but He's not done with Isaac. He promises that He will future tense, he will bless Isaac and multiply Isaac's offspring. And what was Isaac's response? Pure, immediate faith, gratefulness, and devotion. See, he believes, he doesn't just know, he believes in his heart that God was with him. And so he builds an altar and he worships the Lord. And he did the same thing that Abraham had done when Abraham had believed in God's promises. He not only builds an altar, but he calls upon the name of the Lord. Just as the Sethites, who were a godly people, had done. Just like Noah had done. And just like Abraham, his father, had done. Here's the principle that we see here. We see it in Abraham. We see it in Isaac. We see it in the pages of Scripture from beginning to end. When true faith is the root, the fruit is found in our actions. 
We walk in obedience. See, the level of our obedience corresponds to the level of our faith. How much we really believe that God is with us and for us. How much we really believe that God really does hate sin and really does have a way for us to live that would be pleasing unto Him. When true faith is the root, the fruit is found in the way we live our lives. The more we believe that God is with us and that God is for us, the deeper our faith grows and the greater our desire to walk in obedience to the Lord grows. See, we, we don't just need to, to behave better. We don't just need to be nicer, more moral people. We need to believe. We, we don't need just our actions to be changed. Our, our actions change as a result of our heart changing. So we don't need behavior modification. We need a heart transformation. One of the major swings that we see taking place in the church today it really boils down to, to preaching and teaching moralism. Just being a good person. Teaching good ethics. And there's a lot of pressure in our day and age for, for pastors or, or preachers to really just become social activists from the pulpit. Social justice warriors who stand before their congregations. And that's not to say that cultural social issues shouldn't go addressed, that those things are unimportant. But if we really want to confront things like racism and sexism and, and, and you name it, any, anything, anything that's a sin... If we really want to confront sin, it has to start with confronting the heart. It has to start with preaching the gospel. Because preaching the gospel is how people are changed. Faith comes by hearing. A changed life starts with a changed heart. And I fear that in our day and age, we have just made idols out of all these things like self-esteem and personal rights. There are people who, who are so obsessed with making everything completely equal in our time that they would even do things like do away with sports. Because how can a, a 110-pound woman who identifies as a man compete against a 270-pound linebacker? She can't. She can't. So, so there are some who would say that we need, we need to get rid of sports. We need to get rid of competition. We just need a level playing field. And we see the same thing in schools. Some kids, for example, are, are really good at, at English. And some are really good at math. And others are not so good at English. And others are not so good at math. But there are people who would say, well, we just need to bring it all down to the lowest common denominator so that it's equal. Because... Equality and personal rights are really important because self-esteem is based on these things and self-esteem trumps everything. Right? No. The question is, are, are, have they become idols? Have self-esteem and, and things like that become idols? Do they trump and dictate everything else? I believe in personal rights just as much as anyone else, but one thing we don't see in this story is Isaac appealing to his personal rights as a human being. You know who else surrendered his own personal rights? Jesus did. Jesus did. Paul writes this to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3-8. to eight. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Paul's saying, That's the example that you should be following if you are a child of God. We get so caught up with injustice in the world. Maybe we forget that the greatest injustice in the history of the world was that Jesus Christ, the only man to ever walk sinlessly before God, fully fully God, fully man, He willfully surrendered His rights his personal rights, for the sake of many. And he did it with joy. Could he have gotten himself off the cross? Of course he could. If he can speak the universe into existence, he can speak himself off the cross. But he didn't. Because he wasn't concerned with his personal rights. He was concerned with the rights of of everybody else. He was concerned with the salvation of of everybody else, of, of his people. And he was concerned with pleasing God, with pleasing the Father. Personal rights are important, but let us never forget that Jesus did not die for us to have personal rights like freedom of speech, freedom of peaceful, peaceful assembly, the right to bear arms, the right to be uh, treated fairly by our fellow man. Those aren't the things that Jesus died for. He died for a higher cause, a greater cause, for the redemption of the saints, for the redemption of hell-bound sinners. We must preach the gospel because it is the gospel that changes hearts. And a changed heart is going to result in a changed life. A changed heart will be reflected in our actions. And that's exactly what we see in Isaac. He's walking in, as he walks in faith, he walks in obedience. As he trusts the Lord, the Lord provides. The Lord's faithful to his promises. Knowing and believing that God is with you and for you, and that He dwells within you, is literally life-changing. It's literally life-changing. But we need to understand that for Isaac, Beersheba was home. It was home. That, That was where Isaac belonged all along. He faced a troubled path everywhere else he went as everything else seemed to be driving him back to the place where his father had been so thoroughly blessed by God. Why had Isaac left Beersheba to begin with? Because of doubt. Because of sin. Because there was this drought and this famine in the land. For the person who spends a season backsliding into sin, avoiding church, refusing to pursue holiness, refusing to pursue righteousness, you must know that if you are truly a child of God, He will discipline you to drive you home, to drive you back to Him. And only, only with the mind of Christ can we declare, how blessed is the Lord's scourging that brought me home. 
how blessed is the adversity, how thankful I am for my ailments, for my hardships that humbled me and that grew me in the likeness of Christ and forced me to draw closer to God than I had ever been. Closer than I ever would have been if I had just been comfortable. For Isaac, it was envying citizens in Gerar. Then it was the herdsmen, the Philistines, who plagued Isaac's life with strife and contention. What's it been for you? How has God disciplined you? What adversity have you faced? Maybe it's been sickness. Maybe it's been grief. Maybe it's been some kind of pain. Maybe it's been some kind of of heartbreak. But it's been something that God has used to draw you closer to Himself and to grow you in the likeness of Christ. Consider this though. In light of the adversity that you have faced in life, how have you grown? In humility? And how have you grown in the likeness of Christ through your trials? Because if you're a child of God, if you are in Christ, God has ordained those trials, those afflictions, those hardships for your good. Even though it's painful, even though it's hard, even though we struggle with the root of bitterness in our hearts because of it, God has ordained those things to grow you, to grow your faith, and to make you more like Christ. And you can be confident of that. And that's what brings us to the height of this chapter. Let's look at verses 26 to 33. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a swarm pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have not done to you nothing and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city in Beersheba today, therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Now, we can only imagine how, what was going through Isaac's mind when he looks to the horizon and he sees Abimelech and the commander of his army of Abimelech's army coming toward his own camp. It must have been interesting, to say the least. But they come in peace. And they come for the sake of keeping the peace, establishing and and promoting future peace. So Isaac asks what the occasion for the visit is, given that they hated him, given that they told him to to get get out of Dodge. I wouldn't say that I can blame him for wanting that question answered. I can't blame them for feeling like they hated him. That very well may have been the case. But their reason is very interesting. Their reasoning, reasoning starts with this. They say, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. First God said, I will be with you. Then He said, I am with you. And now through the mouth of this pagan king, 
the king says, God is with you, has been with you. Future present tense. Future present past tense. How did Abimelech know that God was with Isaac? I mean, it's pretty obvious, right? It's pretty, it's pretty evident. The Lord's providential blessing has been evident for everyone to see. It was Isaac whose crops flourished despite the shortage of water. It was Isaac who found life-sustaining water every time he put a hole in the ground. And let's not miss the peace that Isaac had through it all. Abimelech was absolutely correct. There was no other logical explanation for any of these things. Isaac doesn't deal with things the way that the world deals with things. And yet he has prospered above and beyond what anybody doing things the world's way would have prospered. Let me ask you this. What conclusion would people draw if they were to put your life under the microscope? Would they see their own worldly reflection, doing things the way that everybody else does things, acting, talking, thinking, the way that everybody else does? Or do they see a life that has been thoroughly transformed and humbled by the grace of God? Do they see somebody who is concerned first and foremost with personal rights? Or do they see someone who's willing to surrender, to set aside their personal rights for the sake of glorifying God and walking in obedience to God. How crazy is it that this king and his commander have come so that they could establish a covenant that would protect them from Isaac doing harm to them. And so they feast together. The covenant is is made. The agreement is made. They they establish peace with one another. Isaac forgives Abimelech. Obviously, there were some hard feelings there. But Isaac forgives Abimelech. And how could he not? Because even our worst enemies can do us no harm that God is not sovereign over. He's sovereign over it all. Consider that the next time you're faced with trials. The next time you struggle to forgive someone. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, is what Paul instructs the Romans. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You think that you can do that without being quick to forgive? Not a chance. Not a chance. Why not? Because others are going to wrong you. Others are going to do injustice against us. it's, It's bound to happen. It's guaranteed to happen. Others will wrong us. But we need to leave that in the hands of the Lord, not take it into our own hands. Which is why Paul continued writing, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. He doesn't say avenge yourself to a certain point, but if it gets too bad, leave it in God's hands. He says, no, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Social justice warriors, take note. Never avenge yourselves. Leave it all 
to the wrath of God. This chapter that began with a severe drought in the land ends with an abundance of water in Isaac's camp. And as Abimelech and his army commander leave, Isaac's servants report that they have dug a well and they've discovered even more water. See, Isaac could have pled his case for the ownership of all these wells with Abimelech. While Abimelech was there, he could have said, hey, you know, by the way, I dug up three wells and I want those back as part of this covenant, as part of this peace treaty. He could have made that a condition for for the covenant. So why didn't he? Because he trusted in the Lord to provide. And provide he did, wherever Isaac went. See, this is why it's so vital, why it's so important for us to know and to understand and believe the attributes of God. It matters that you believe that He's omnipresent. It matters that you believe that He's all-powerful. It matters that you believe that He is sovereign over all of your circumstances and that He's using them for His glory and for the good of His people. It matters that you believe that He's with you. It matters that you believe that He's for you. It matters that you believe that He dwells within you because all of these things or what provide a healthy, nourishing soil for the root of your faith to grow deeper and richer in. And that's what's going to produce good fruit in your lives. So don't look to your circumstances to be the basis of your joy and your contentment and your happiness. Instead, look to the promises of God. Your circumstances are going to change. They just do. That's, that's what happens. Circumstances change. Day in, day out, week in, week out. Circumstances change. But God's promises will not. Above all, in all things, remember that if you have repented and put saving faith in Christ Jesus, if you are thereby at peace with God, it often invites strife with man. And so as a Christian, know that you are going to face adversity. But you will never face a single thing that God is not sovereign over, that He did not either cause or allow. So remain at peace, remembering that the world is watching. We're all under a microscope, especially in this day and age. Therefore, whatever comes, do all that you do for the glory and for the exaltation of Christ. Make it your top priority to love Him, to glorify Him, to honor Him, to obey Him, and to pursue holiness before God and peace with your neighbors in such a way that would make Christ beautiful and glorious in the eyes of those who would examine your life. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You, Lord, that Your ways are higher, greater, wiser than our ways. And so we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You that Your Word instructs us on the path of righteousness. It teaches us to follow You. And we see, Lord, that You are a great and wise and sovereign God. 
And we pray that you would use our circumstances to grow us in our devotion to you and would grow us in our resolve to live for the glory of Christ. Father, in the silence of our hearts, we confess before you that we are sinners. We confess that we have sinned in the way that we behave, in the things that we think, in the ways that we talk. We confess that we have not loved you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But we thank you that there is grace in Christ Jesus. And we thank you that you sent him to pay the penalty for our sins in order that we could stand before you blameless, justified. And so as justified saints, Lord, we ask that you would continue to use all things, all circumstances in our lives to strengthen us, to sanctify us, to grow us in the likeness of Christ, that he would be glorified in our lives. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.